Hello, and welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast, the podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. My name is Teddy, and I'm going to read a story from an old book, not one that is particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings will come from Bleak House by Charles Dickens. It has many characters and subplots. At the centre of Bleak House is a long-running legal case in the Court of Chancery. Originally published as a 20-episode serial between 1852 and 1853, with a name such as Bleak House, I believe this will be a good choice to help you get to sleep. If you've enjoyed the episodes and they've helped you get sleepy, I have a quick favour to ask. Please jump into your podcast app, leave a review and rating. It really helps out, helps me bring more episodes to you, and also helps me keep the show free. You can also jump over to the website boreyoutosleep.com just in case you need any assistance or guidance on how to listen to the episodes. In the meantime, please feel free to lie back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Bleak House by Charles Dickens Chapter 1 In Chancery London Michaelmas term lately over and the Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Inn Hall Implacable November weather As much mud in the streets as if the waters had but newly retired from the face of the earth and it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus forty feet long or so waddling like a alphantine lizard up Holborn Hill smoke lowering down from chimney pots making a soft black drizzle with flakes of soot in it as big as full-grown snowflakes, gone into mourning, one might imagine, for the death of the sun. Dogs, undistinguishable in mire, horses, scarcely better, splashed to their very blinkers, foot passengers jostling one another's umbrellas, in a general infection of ill temper and losing their footholds at street corners where tens of thousands 
of other foot passengers have been slipping and sliding since the day broke, if this day ever broke, adding new deposits to the crust upon crust of mud, sticking at those points tenaciously to the pavement and accumulating at compound interest. Fog everywhere, fog up the river, where it flows among green eights and meadows, fog down the river, where it rolls defiled among the tears of shipping and the waterside pollutions of a great and dirty city. Fog on the Essex marshes, fog on the Kentish heights, fog creeping into the cabooses of collier brigs, fog lying out on the yards and hovering in the rigging of great ships, fog drooping on the gunwales of barges and small boats, fog in the eyes and throats of ancient Greenwich pensioners, wheezing by the firesides of their wards, fog in the stem and bow of the afternoon pipe of the wrathful skipper, down in his close cabin, fog cruelly pinching the toes and fingers of his shivering little prentice boy on deck. Chance people on the bridges peeping over the parapets into a nether sky of fog, with fog all around them, as if they were up in a balloon and hanging in the misty clouds. Gas looming through the fog in divers places in the streets, much as the sun may, from the spongy fields, be seen to loom by husbandman and ploughboy. Most of the shops lighted two hours before their time, as the gas seems to know, for it has a haggard and unwilling look. The raw afternoon is rawest, and the dense fog is densest, and the muddy streets are muddiest near the leaden-headed old obstruction, appropriate ornament for the threshold of a leaden-headed old corporation, Temple Bar. And hard by Temple Bar, in Lincoln's Inn Hall, at the very heart of the fog, sits the Lord High Chancellor in his High Court of Chancery. Never can there come fog too thick, never can there come mud and mire too deep to assort with the groping and floundering condition which this High Court of Chancery, most pestilent of hoary sinners, holds this day in the sight of heaven and earth. On such an afternoon, if the Lord High Chancellor 
ought to be sitting here, as here he is, with a foggy glory round his head, softly fenced in with crimson cloth and curtains, addressed by a large advocate with great whiskers, a little voice and interminable brief and outwardly directing his contemplation to the lantern in the roof where he can see nothing but fog. On such an afternoon, some score of members of the High Court of Chancery Bar ought to be, as here they are, mistily engaged in one of the 10,000 stages of an endless cause, tripping one another up on slippery precedents, groping knee-deep in technicalities, running their goat hair and horse hair warded heads against walls of words, and making a pretense of equity with serious faces as players might. On such an afternoon, the various solicitors in the cause, some two or three of whom have inherited it from their fathers, who made a fortune by it, ought to be as they are not ranged in a line in a long matted well but you might look in vain for truth at the bottom of it between the registrar's red table and the silk gowns with bills cross bills answers rejoinders injunctions affidavits issues references to masters, masters' reports, mountains of costly nonsense piled before them. Well, may the court be dim with wasting candles here and there. Well, may the fog hang heavy as if it would never get out. Well, may the stained glass windows lose their colour and admit no light of day into the place. Well, may the uninitiated from the streets who peep in through the glass panes in the door be deterred from entrance by its owlish aspect and by the drawl, languidly echoing to the roof from the padded day where the Lord High Chancellor looks into the lantern that has no light in it and where the attendant wigs are all stuck in a fog bank. This is the court of Chancery which has its decaying houses and its blighted lands in every shire which has its worn out lunatic in every madhouse and its dead in every churchyard which has its ruined suitor 
with his slipshod heels and threadbare dress, borrowing and begging through the round of every man's acquaintance, which gives to moneyed might the means abundantly of wearying out the right which so exhausts finances, patience, courage, hope, so overthrows the brain and breaks the heart that there is not an honourable man among its practitioners who would not give, who does not often give the warning, suffer any wrong that can be done, you rather come here. Who happened to be in the Lord Chancellor's court this murky afternoon, besides the Lord Chancellor? The counsel in the cause, two or three counsel, who are never in any cause, and the well of solicitors before mentioned. There is the registrar below the judge, in wig and gown, and there are two or three maces, or petty bags, or privy purses, or whatever they may be, in legal court suits. These are all yawning, for no crumb of amusement ever falls from Jardendice and Jardendice, the cause in hand, which was squeezed dry years upon years ago. The shorthand writers, the reporters of the court, and the reporters of the newspapers invariably decamp with the rest of the regulars when Jarndyce and Jarndyce comes on. Their places are a blank, standing on a seat at the side of the hall, the better to peer into the curtained sanctuary is a little mad old woman in a squeezed bonnet who is always on court, from its sitting to its rising and always expecting some incomprehensible judgment to be given in her favour some say she really is, or was, a party to a suit that no one knows for certain because no one cares. She carries some small litter in a reticule which she calls her documents, principally consisting of paper maches and dry lavender. A sallow prisoner has come up in custody for the half dozenth time to make a personal application to purge himself of his contempt, which being a solitary surviving executor who has fallen into a state of conglomeration about accounts of which it is not pretended that he had ever any knowledge he is not at all likely ever to do. In the meantime, his prospects in life are ended, 
another ruined Suda, who periodically appears from the Shropshire and breaks out into efforts to address the Chancellor at the close of the day's business and who can by no means be made to understand that the Chancellor is legally ignorant of his existence after making it desolate for a quarter of a century, plants himself in a good place and keeps an eye on the judge, ready to call out, my lord, in a voice of sonorous complaint, on the instant of his rising, a few lawyers' clerks and others who know this suitor by sight linger on the chance of his furnishing some fun and enlivening the dismal weather a little. Jandice and Jandice drones on. This scarecrow of a suit has, in course of time, become so complicated that no man alive knows what it means. The parties to it understand at least, but it has been observed that no chancery lawyers can talk about it for five minutes without coming to a total disagreement as to all the premises. Innumerable children have been born into the cause Innumerable young people have married into it. Innumerable old people have died out of it. Scores of persons have deliriously found themselves made parties in jandice and jandice without knowing how or why. Whole families have inherited legendary hatreds with the suit. The little plaintiff or defendant who was promised a new rocking horse when Jandice and Jandice should be settled, has grown up, possessed himself of a real horse, and trotted away into the other world. Fair words of court have faded into mothers and grandmothers. A long procession of chancellors has come in and gone out, the legion of bills in the suit have been transformed into the mere bills of mortality. There are not three Jandices left upon the earth perhaps since old Tom Jandice in despair blew his brains out at a coffee house in Chancery Lane that Jandice and Jandice still drags its dreary length before the court, perennially hopeless. Jandice and Jandice has passed into a joke that is the only good thing that has ever come from it. It has been death to many, but is a joke in the profession. Every master in chancery has had a reference out of it. Every Chancellor was in it, for somebody or other, when he was counsel at the bar, 
good things have been said about it by blue-nosed, bulbous-shoed old benches in select port wine committee after dinner in hall. Articled clerks have been in the habit of fleshing their legal wit upon it. The last Lord Chancellor handled it neatly when, correcting Mr. Blowers, the eminent silk gown who said that such a thing might happen when the sky rained potatoes, he observed, or when we get through jarndyce and jarndyce. Mr. Blowers, a pleasantry that particularly tickled the maces and purses and bags. How many people out of the suit Jarndyce and Jarndyce has stretched forth its unwholesome hand to spoil and corrupt would be a very wide question from the master upon whose impaling files reams of dusty warrants in Jarndyce and Jarndyce have grimly writhed into many shapes down to the copying clerk in the sixth clerk's office who had copied his tens of thousands of chancery folio pages under that eternal heading. No man's nature has been made better by it. In trickery, evasion, procrastination, spoliation, botheration, under false pretenses of all sorts, there are influences that can never come to good. The very solicitor's boys who have kept the wretched suitors at bay by protesting time out of mind that Mr. Chisel, Mizzle, or otherwise was particularly engaged and had appointments until dinner may have got an extra moral twist and shuffle into themselves out of jarndyce and jarndyce. The receiver in the cause has acquired a goodly sum of money by it, but has acquired too a distrust of his own mother and a contempt for his own kind. Chisel, mizzle and otherwise have lapsed into a habit of vaguely promising themselves that they will look into that outstanding little matter and see what can be done for Drizzle, who is not well used when Jarndyce and Jarndyce shall be got out of the office, shirking and sharking in all their many varieties have been sown broadcast by the ill-fated cause, and even those who have contemplated its history from the outermost circle of such evil has been insensibly tempted into a loose way of letting bad things alone to take their own bad course, and the loose belief that if the world go wrong, it was in some offhand manner never meant to go right. 
Thus in the midst of the mud and the heart of the fog sits the Lord High Chancellor in his High Court of Chancery. Mr. Tangle, says the Lord High Chancellor, latterly something restless under the eloquence of the learned gentleman. Mud, says Mr. Tangle. Mr. Tangle knows more of Jarndyce and Jarndyce than anybody. He is famous for it. Supposed never to have read anything else he left school. Have you nearly concluded your argument? Mud, no variety of points. Feel it my duty, submit Ludship is the reply that slides out of Mr. Tangle. Several members of the bar are still to be heard, I believe, says the Chancellor with a slight smile. Eighteen of Mr. Tangle's learned friends, each armed with a little summary of 1,800 sheets, bob up like 18 hammers in a piano fort, make 18 bows and drop into their 18 places of obscurity. We will proceed with the hearing on Wednesday fortnight, says the Chancellor, for the question at issue is only a question of costs, a mere bud on the forest tree of the parent suit and really will come to a settlement one of these days. And that concludes the readings from tonight's episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. If you're not feeling drowsy yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. Until next time, good night and rest easy.